Hi, I'm David Naiman, the host of the radio show and podcast Between the Covers. People are often surprised to learn that this is not my day job, that I don't get paid. But that's not why I'm here today. I'm not here to ask you for an income. Up until now, hosting the podcast has involved only nominal fees, but the podcast has seen explosive growth this year. Listenership has quadrupled in less than 10 months. And these once nominal fees have grown to many hundreds of dollars, which could easily become thousands next year and which I'm paying myself. So I'm here today talking to you in the hope of creating a sustainable model for me to nurture the podcast success. If you value these interviews, whether with great fiction writers such as George Saunders, Laurie Moore, or Juno Diaz, science fiction icons Ursula K. Le Guin, William Gibson, and Neil Stevenson, or genre-bending essayists and poets such as Claudia Rankine, Maggie Nelson, and Mary Rufel, I hope you'll become a patron of Between the Covers. Your per-episode contribution would be your way to participate in the show's long-term health. Please take a moment and either go to Patreon, P-A-T-R-E-O-N, dot com slash between the covers or to david com slash support and give your support and enjoy today's program between the covers is brought to you in part through the support of propeller a magazine of books music art film and life and its publishing imprint propeller books visit them on the web at propellermag.com and propellerbooks.com or on Twitter at PropellerMag. These stories are about the id unleashed. They're about the wildness contained in all of us. I think stories kind of have some kind of magical effect in the world. I think it's really hard to live without stories. And if somebody tells you, like, this is the way you're going to end up, you're lucky if you can forget that. You know, there's me, and then there's writer guy me, and then there's me working, which is the absence of me. It's just story. Had no idea how to write a novel, didn't know if it would ever come to fruition. Was working at a vet and kind of lint-rolling puppy hair and cat dander off myself. They're almost like really shy animals. They will come out of the woods, but you have to stay very still, and you have to pretend like you're not interested in them. Artists tend to, like, put their fingers in the wounds in the silences. I believe in the role of literature as a, as a catalyst for dialogue and, and, and new forms of, of thinking. All the stuff I'm interested in is thrown into the washing machine that is my brain and it's put on spin. Good morning and welcome to Between the Covers. I'm David Naiman, your host. Today's guest, Brian Evanson, is a writer whose work and appeal is hard to categorize. For instance, his admirers include both canonical science fiction writer Samuel Delaney and Gilles Deleuze, one of the most influential French philosophers in the latter half of the 20th century. Writer George Saunders says there is no one who is more intense, prolific, or as apocalyptic a writer of fiction in America today. Writer Kyle Miner calls Evanson an elder statesman of innovative fiction. And writer Jonathan Lethem says Brian Evanson is one of the treasures of American story writing, a successor to Coover, Bartholomew, and Hawks, but also to Edgar Allan Poe. From the very beginning of his career, Evanson's writing has unsettled and disturbed. With the publication of his first novel, Altman's Tongue, Evanson received a warning from his employer, Brigham Young University, that if he continued to write novels in the same vein, it would lead to repercussions. Evanson chose his art left his teaching post at BYU, and eventually left the Mormon faith as well. Several subsequent books of his, Father of Lies and Last Days, among them grappled with his upbringing in the church. 
A writer of over a dozen books of fiction, Brian Evanson is the recipient of three O. Henry Prizes, an NEA Fellowship, the International Horror Guild Award, the American Library Association's Award for Best Horror Novel, and has been a finalist for the Edgar Award, Shirley Jackson Award, and the World Fantasy Award. In addition, Evanson writes literary criticism on the works of Robert Coover and the graphic novelist Chester Brown, among others. He's a translator of French language writers, from which he was a finalist for the French American Foundation's Translation Prize, and he writes popular fiction under the name B.K. Evanson. Evanson has been the longtime Royce Professor of Teaching Excellence in Brown University's Literary Arts Department, but has recently relocated to the West Coast to teach at CalArts. This year, his main publisher, Coffeehouse Press, has reissued three of his novels, along with his new short story collection, A Collapse of Horses. Evanson joins me today on Between the Covers to talk about A Collapse of Horses. In order to describe the effect of this book on the reader, Hayden Bennett at The Believer magazine uses a line from the writer Julio Cortazar, and I can't think of a better way to introduce the, the conversation than to repeat that line here. Stories of this type are affixed like indelible scars on any reader who can appreciate them. They are living creatures, complete organisms, closed circles, and they breathe. Welcome to Between the Covers, Brian Evanson. Thank you. Happy to be here. So when you were in the interview with Kyle Miner for Tin House Magazine, he did this really great thing where he tried to categorize all the different tropes that you touch upon in this collection, A Collapse uh-huh. of Horses. And the list included the Western, the suspense thriller, the folk tale, the gothic romance, the urban legend, the whodunit, the procedural, and the horror story. Uh-huh. And I thought that was, I, I could see all of that right. in, a, in A Collapse of Horses. However, I felt like, the through line, regardless of the trope, felt to me like it was horror or some sort of fiction of estrangement or some sort of yeah. fiction of self-estrangement. Does that sound right to you? Or Yeah, no, I, I think I agree with that. I, I think it's either horror or, or the weird, if you want to call it the weird. Mm-hmm. And, uh, I'm, I'm always, I've always been really interested in kind of uncanniness in fiction and fiction that makes you feel unsettled or in which reality seems to be breaking down in some ways. And, and which I see as one of the major um, tropes of horror fiction, the idea that, that what you think is real or how that you think the world is is not, in fact, the way it is. Um, so, so yeah, I, I think that that's definitely um, uh, the thing that holds these stories together and makes them talk to one another. And you've, you've mentioned that the, what you call the collision between the literary and the horror is something that you keep coming back to and, and seems to be fertile ground for you in, in, in writing, that... Um, both of them have strengths in in addressing yeah. this this sort of uh, self estrangement and estrangement. Can can you talk about about why you return to th- this particular nexus of of two elements? Um, so I think that as a as a reader, the thing that's really fascinated me about fiction is fiction that makes me reconsider everything I thought I know, that I, th- that I thought I knew. Excuse me, and uh, um, I think that that. Uh, is something that that both horror and literature kind of try to do in a, a different sort of way, uh, but but yeah, I mean, I think for for me, why read fiction if it isn't something that can potentially change you or transform you? Um, that's that's I think why I'm drawn to it so often. And, and do you feel like horror and literary fiction ha- throw off particular sparks in this regard? Like, is there some sort of 
friction that's happening between the two in that pursuit for um, something new? <laughs> well, I think that just the collision of them can um, bring together certain aspects of both. I think that what happens kind of at the, the line between genres is that if you're, if you're lucky, the best thing, um, best things in both genres are kind of occurring. And you can take advantage of the strengths of literary fiction. You can take the advantage of the strengths of horror fiction. I mean, I think horror fiction generally puts a, a great amount of emphasis on on uh, on mood, uh, and literary fiction often puts a great amount of emphasis on on language. And somehow trying to to bring those things together and 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 you know make them kind of work together, um, I, I think can just be really productive in terms of of you know deranging reality. I guess. Yeah. Do you see any difference between horror fiction and weird fiction? I know you mentioned weird as yeah. one description. Yeah. And I know, like, say, like, China Mieville, who's, mm-hmm. who's been on the program, has talked about himself as in that genre yeah. of weird fiction, going back to Lovecraft. And yeah. um, is there a difference for you? Or there, there is and there isn't. I mean, I think it's a funny term. I, I know Jeff Vandermeer, who's the one who kind of has, has given the most kind of contemporary life to that that term um and his anthology um the weird that he did with his wife ann vandermeer uh, is something that i'm actually teaching in a class right now but i'm teaching it in my horror fiction class mm-hmm. and and i've noticed you know I've, I've been thinking about this all semester just because i've you know it in theory the idea is the weird is for jeff is distinct from from horror and i don't know exactly <laughs> <laughs> um i feel like there's there's a lot of similarities um i think that people who uh, who consider themselves weird, uh, maybe have one, a little bit more of their foot in literary fiction. Yeah. Uh, and that they may be more interested in kind of creating just, just a sense of uncanniness or strangeness or suspense, uh, than horror writers. Some horror writers are kind of moving more towards, you know, something more visceral in some ways. And I would, I would argue that different stories of mine seem to do different sorts of things. But, but, you know, stories in this book have been in Year's Best Horror, but there's also one of the stories in the book is coming out in, in Year's Best Weird. So I, I guess I, right. I'm going to try to claim both. <laughs> All right. Yeah. I think you should. Okay, good. <laughs> <laughs> well, one of the things you do do repeatedly, I think, in this collection is um, you make the narrators unsure of what they are experiencing. Right. Uh, the protagonists want to be reliable narrators for the right. most part. They're trying their best to report the truth to us. Um, but whether they've experienced uh, blunt head trauma or find themselves <laughs> in dangerously low oxygen environments or yeah. have taken a psychoactive drug, they aren't able to know for sure what is what. And so what they tell us, um, they can't even be sure is reliable, even right. though their attempts are earnest. Yeah. We may know more as a reader, right. but I still think there's an uneasiness for the reader in mm-hmm. this regard. Like we, Our feet aren't on the ground either. Yeah, I, I think that ultimately what I want is for for whatever's happening with the characters to translate into a certain kind of unsettledness for the the, the reader as well, and so so yeah, yeah, that's really what I'm hoping for is that you go away from the stories feeling a little bit off balance, and I think that you, we we go through life really liking to think that life is is stable, life is kind of just you know that we understand it in some ways. Um, but I, I really think that the way we take in life is an approximation in some regards that we're not interacting so much with the world out there as with a kind of model of the world. And, and as a result, I think that our, our sense of reality is, is, is never as rich or never quite as precise as reality itself is. 
Uh, and usually that just doesn't matter because we, for, for most of our daily interactions, it just doesn't make any difference. It's, it's close enough to kind of be functional. You know, we can order coffee and it'll work out just fine. Um, but every once in a while we'll have these moments where, where our perception just, just is, is off or wrong and, and where we, we think that we're seeing one thing and, 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 uh, it ends up being something completely different. Uh, I tell the story sometimes about, um, being uh, in a parking lot late at night and walking through this mostly empty parking lot and seeing on the other side of the parking lot um, a, a bird kind of moving around and and getting closer to it and realizing that the bird's moving very strangely and thinking it must be injured and, you know, it, just, just keeping on approaching. And then it's only when I'm very close indeed that I realized that it was not a bird at all. It was a leaf that was being blown mm. around by the wind. And... And, you know, in one sense, that's just a matter of, of mistaken perception. Uh, in another sense, it's like my experience of what was going on there for, for a good, you know, a minute and a half, two minutes, um, was that I was seeing a bird. And, and that remains as a kind of residue in my head, even once I realize it's not a, a, a bird. And so in my mind, I can kind of go back and, and change everything I experienced in those last minute and a half, two minutes. Um, but at the same time, I'm, I still have that kind of experience with me. And some part of me feels like something's happened, that there was a bird there and it's no longer there. And so I, I became really interested in these moments uh, uh, in which just reality seems to be one thing for us and it ends up being another thing. And then what's the ultimate effect of how that feels for you? Yeah. Um, and that happened with the title story of, of this collection, The uh, Collapse of Horses. Um, there's an experience in that where someone comes to a horse paddock and sees all these horses that are just lying down. And he can't tell for a minute whether he's, you know, he's seeing horses that are dead or horses that are, are um um, alive, but just lying down for some reason. He's never seen horses lie down before, so it just seems like an odd experience. Um, and that's something that happened when when my wife and I were walking through um, Golden Gate Park. There's a paddock there, and we came across these horses um, lying down. And even though I grew up in the West, I'd never had an experience where I'd seen, you know, every horse in, in a in a paddock lying down. Hmm. Um, and really have you rarely see horses kind of lying flat at all. So it, it just was very odd. Yeah. And, and, uh, you know, and eventually after about 30 or seconds or so, one of them flicked their tails and we realized they weren't dead, <laughs> but, but, you know, that starts me thinking and, and, you know, that that moment of uncertainty or not knowing what's really happening is something that I just, I really am intrigued by because I think it's how we respond to those moments determines how, how we are as humans. Well, it's interesting that you call them moments um, because you have this quote in the same story, A Collapse of, of Horses, that uh -huh. you say, not knowing is something you can only suspend yourself in the briefest of moments, mm -hmm. as if it's the subtext seems to be that not knowing is the horror in a sense. Yeah. But um, you you hold us in that place for the entire story. Like, yeah. you know, often <laughs> it's not as if we go. So in a way, maybe your interest in the moment is yeah. to create a whole, like to expand that moment and to create an entire universe within it. Yeah, yeah. And I think you can see the story as being the equivalent of a kind of moment like that for the reader. Mm. And so it, and it is something you, you, you know, in, in theory, you would read one of my stories and it unsettles you for this, this moment. 
and then potentially you can return to the real world um, and maybe be a little more confused or something. But um, yeah. but but you know something's changed a little bit for you. But but it's also like you know it's a moment in your life. Whereas the characters in the story, it's it's more than a moment in their lives. Right. It's it's something that kind of persists for them. Um, either through mental illness or through you know the level of derangement that they have, or just their inability to let go of the, of, of the um, you know the uh, um, of, of the strangeness of the experience and not being able to decide what it means. And so much of it kind of resolves uh, re- revolves, excuse me. So much of it revolves around knowledge and whether they they do or they they you know don't know what's going on. And so many of these characters want to be so precise about like figuring out exactly what's happening that they never can get to the point where they say, "Oh yes, this is what's happening." Um, they they just are never quite. There's never enough to dismiss their uncertainty. Well, that that would bring us to like a philosophical question of you. You have these moments like the horses you saw in Golden yeah. Gate Park or the bird and the leaf. Yeah these moments that you could call errors of perception. Right. But if you lean into it more, is everything an error of perception? Well, that's it. Yeah. And finally, you think that that probably, yes, it is. But but we kind of go through life making these errors of perception, and most of them don't make a, a ton of, of difference. Um, you know, we can kind of move through life and make sense of the world and, and be okay kind of on a functional level. But the more precisely you think about them, the more disturbing they end up being. Hmm. Um, there's there's a test that um, is done sometimes where you, you put one hand on the table and the other hand under the table, and in the place of your hand that's under the table, they put a, um, a, a rubber hand on the table that, that is not attached to anything, just a severed rubber hand. Rubber hand. And then um, the person who's administering the test um, takes a, a kind of um, Q-tip or something and rubs both your hand that's under the table that's hidden and the the rubber hand on top. And what happens is because you're feeling the sensation of your, your finger being rubbed and seeing the finger being rubbed of the hand that's kind of next to your actual hand above the table, slowly your mind starts to think that this is your, your hand. And, and people report having done this and, and feeling kind of a ghostly arm forming between this <laughs> severed hand and, and their, their body. Um, and I, in one sense, that's just a wrong perception. In another sense, it's just like the brain is just so adaptable in terms of being able to make sense of the world and, and, and to make things cohere uh, in ways that, you know, they really don't. But that's like, you know, what, what you have is, you know, you're feeling something, um, uh, you're seeing something, you just, you feel like you need to equate those things right. and you do in a way that, that works. It really, you know, it's, it's, in a way it's incorrect and your mind knows it's incorrect, but your mind can't help but do it anyway. Well, it's sort of, maybe it's not just an error of perception, but also pulling back the curtain on yeah. perception as a form of construction right. always that yeah, where yeah. maybe it shows us the way that perception actually is built in the first place. Yeah. Yeah. No, I think that's true. And I think perception is always constru- constructive. Um, and, and that's intriguing, um, especially for people who at a certain point wrongly construct things in, in to such a degree that it's hard to know how they really even belong to, um, the same kind of realm that other people do. Hmm. In case you just tuned in, you're listening to Between the Covers, and we're talking today to author Brian Evanson about his latest collection of stories, A Collapse of Horses. 
Well, at one point in your story, the report, which I think covers a lot of um, uh-huh. philosophical ground, actually, mm-hmm. the protagonist of this story, he muses if it would be harder to watch the man in the cell next to him get his feet burned, or if it was worse not to see it, to just hear it and smell it, and then fill in the rest with his imagination. Right. <laughs> uh, he concludes it's far worse to imagine than to watch. Mm-hmm. And this almost, I think, could be used as a description of one of your narrative strategies. Um, We never learn why this guy is in the cell. Uh, The point of the story isn't revelation or epiphany or greater understanding. Um, It is more like an evocation of a certain type of mood, which you mentioned around horror, Mm -hmm. and of uh, of incomprehension itself. Mm -hmm. It seems like that is almost the point of the story in in some regards. one that's made stronger by denying us all of those typical things we expect in a conventional narrative. Yeah. 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 I mean, I think that, that it is a probably a, a good description of what I try to do. Um, and I do think that this, uh, my, my writing is in general fairly spare in terms of what actually happens. It's not terribly graphic. There are moments that, that get a little graphic, but I think there's, there's much more kind of left to the imagination and I think it is because um, there's so much about the imagination that um, uh, is is your imagination is going to create situations for you that are just much more um, disturbing than anything that I could do on the page. Hmm. So I often see writing as a kind of catalyst that's there to kind of get your imagination working, your mind working, and and you know lead you into a place that's very particular to your own. Well, another thing that happens to our our brave protagonists in this collection is that uh, with the errors of perception they experience and with their attempts to uh, find objective ground to stand upon, uh-huh. perhaps, uh, there's a a destabilization of self, I think, that yeah. happens in a lot of these. For one, um, there's several stories that have uh, people who start to see their body parts as alien to them. Yeah. Uh, one, uh, the guy in dust, and he looks at his hands at one point, mm-hmm. and he's not sure that they're his own hands. Right, and, right. and there's the guy who gets the <laughs> ear surgery, and he he gets his ear reattached, and um, it's clearly not right. feeling like it's part of his body anymore. Right, right. So that's like this body dysmorphia mm-hmm. seems like one part of this. But then there's also um, characters that look like other characters, like minor characters yeah. who may be mistaken as our main character, um, people who replace other characters. And then this strange, sometimes this unstable point of view where you're switching from you to we to I. But all of this feels like it's aiming at um, unmooring a sense of self. Is that Yeah, I I think that's accurate. Yeah. And I think it's it's about these confusions. I mean, we... um, you know, we, we like to think of things as discrete and different. And, and uh, you know, when you start to have things like doublings of characters or or you have, you know, uh, where, where things just don't seem clear anymore, or it's impossible to know things, then that all kind of creates a sense of not only that the world is falling apart, but that the self is kind of collapsing or that, that you, you don't, you know, when you start to feel like you don't know what the world is like, you start to feel like you don't know who you are at the same time. I think I can't remember if it's this book or previous book, but one of the characters at some point says, you know, it's it's he has a hard time deciding if there's something wrong with him or something wrong with the world. Hmm. And in a way, I don't know that there's a, a difference in a sense. If you think of the world as something that's perceived by a self, then then if there's something wrong with the world, then there's also always something wrong with you right. and your perception. 
Um, and then that even with Collapse of Horses, that goes as far as um, a kind of uh, the first story and the last story of this book end up being a kind of echo of one another. And so so something going on in the first story is, is kind of played around with in the last story and kind of t- partly taken apart, I think. Mm-hmm. And so so even the narrative and what you think you're being told, I think, ends up being kind of removed in some regards. Right. Mm-hmm. Well, it made me wonder, th- this unmooring of the self, what your own belief system or ph- philosophical beliefs were around the existence of a self. And, uh-huh. and this this rubber hand experiment, I know, is one of the things that's used in 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 investigating selfhood yeah. in science. Yeah, yeah. And that in philosophy and in science, the existence of a self is actually a hotly debated right. uh, topic. Yeah. Where do you fall on it <laughs> in terms of, um, you know, your own personal approach to um, selfhood? Well, you know, I, I think I, I, I've done a lot of reading over the years about selfhood, and, and you know, I, I was trained as uh, uh on post-structuralist theory, I did my degree at University of Washington in Seattle and did a um, PhD in critical theory up there and specialized on kind of French anti-Hegelian, uh, uh, post-Hegelian, basically French thought. And so, so you know, looked at a lot of um, writers who, who uh, philosophers who uh, were interested in thinking of the self as maybe a construct or the self as something that was was tentative or falling apart in some ways. Um, I, I'm certainly sympathetic to that. Um, I, I, uh, I think that I don't feel like I have a complete answer on that. So Mm -hmm. I think that a lot of the things that, uh, I'm doing in my stories is it's a way of putting pressure on notions of the self and just seeing what happens. Yeah. So it's not so much that I have a a view of what the self is or isn't that I want to express and more that I just am interested in thinking of writing as a way of, of experimenting and just seeing what, what happens to, to readers and to to the characters as as certain sorts of things occur on the page. Well, it, it made me wonder about certain craft choices you make. Mm-hmm. Um, that, and you've said before that you're skeptical of a lot of accepted notions of the structure of the mind, particularly yeah. the subconscious yeah, yeah. in relationship to, uh, at least the subcon- subconscious as we think of it in the Freudian way. Yeah, I'm very skeptical of that. <laughs> I'd, I'd, I'd love to hear about that, but, but let me ask you this first. I, I wondered if the belief that there isn't a sub- subconscious um, that whatever consciousness that we do have um, may not totally cohere the way we think it does, mm-hmm. that it's tenuous at best. Is this related to choices like not using a lot of interiority, of not using backstory to um, mm-hmm. to uh, explain motivations of characters, um, of the reader not ever necessarily knowing the why behind a scenario? Yeah. Is, that, is there a resonance between that and some of these... Um, skepticisms about how our, our minds actually work. I think there is, but I also don't think I, I'm, I'm not beginning with the philosophical idea and then kind of moving with that. I think it's right. just naturally my writing seems to have gravitated towards that. And I, I do like, I mean, I think it's partly just what I like as a reader, that I like stories that, um, that, that uh, continue to work on me after I've put the book down. And, and that's the kind of story I want to write for my readers as well, the stories that continue to have not only an effect but continue to kind of play out and change in your head after you've finished the book. So I guess it would be partly that. Yeah. So, yeah. One of the things that's cool about the this reissue of the four books uh-huh. um, is that these four books form a, a whole cover. Yeah. And so in a weird way, this is there's a destabilization of self. There's a mm-hmm. suggestion that the four books can't be read without 
you can't have a whole unless you have right. all four in right, a weird right. way. And yet all four make an, a multiple self because this is a creature on the cover when you have all four that is of a, from a variety of different types right. of animals. Right, right. And so in a weird, a weird way, we get this multiplicity of self and mm-hmm. this unmooring of self on the cover. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, and I, I think that, so So I, I would say in terms of my connection to horror that that's one of the things that I'm really interested in is, is one of the things that comes up again and again in horror literature is, is this this inability to determine if, if something is, is singular or multiple or the idea that something just won't stay in one form exactly. And kind of taking that and extending that to just the, the notion of the world, I guess, is mm. something that I do. Uh, but then also just just the idea of things being unknowable is something that comes up in a lot of the better horror literature as well. So so those are things that I'm, I'm sympathetic to philosophically and that the horror genre probably encourages me to think about in a different way than the philosophy does. And so those right. come together in different ways. Yeah. Well, let's have our listeners hear some of the, the prose from, okay. from the collection. Sure. Um, so I'm going to just read the first page or two of the first story, which is a story called Black Bark. Uh, and uh, it's a story that's kind of a Western in which it gets stranger and stranger as it goes along. So it won't get that strange by the time I, I end this reading. Black Bark. They've been riding two days straight now, climbing farther and farther up into the mountain in a bitter wind, searching for the cabin Sug claimed was supposed to be there. Things had not gone smooth. Sug had taken one in the leg, the thigh, and the blood had dripped down inside his pant leg and into his boot. Now Raleigh saw the boot was over full, and Sug was leaving a drizzle of blood along the trail behind them. The side of Sugg's stolen tovero, too, was slicked with it, and the slick had taken on a vaguely human shape, as if Sugg's leg jostling back and forth against the horse had been trying to draw someone with his blood. "'We gotta stop,' said Raleigh. "'You need to rest.' For a long time, Sugg didn't answer. Then he said, in a voice just above a whisper, "'It's around here somewhere, bound to come across at any moment.' "'Where?' asked Raleigh. "'There'd been nothing for miles.' When Sugg didn't answer, he said, it's going to be dark soon. But Sug just kept on, or didn't rein his horse in anyway. Maybe the horse was just following its own path. They were following a trail that flirted with the fast-moving creek, curving toward it and then away again. At first, Sug hadn't been sure it was the right creek. Now he claimed to be sure, but Raleigh guessed he didn't know for certain. He'd been saying for hours the cabin was just around the next curve, around the next bend, but no cabin ever was. Going to be dark soon, Raleigh repeated. We should stop, make camp. Again, it took a long time for Sug to answer, but when he did, his voice sounded a little stronger. They still following, he asked. Raleigh shook his head, spat. Haven't been for hours, he said. We shook him. Maybe they just want us thinking so, said Sug. Maybe they're trying to take us off guard. Raleigh shook his head again. Nah, he said. It's just us. Sug was swaying a little in the saddle. For a moment, Raleigh eased back on his reins and watched him. Sug, he said, Sug, you gotta stop. Sug didn't say anything, just kept riding. Sug, he called after him. I'm stopping here. I mean it. But Sug didn't look back. He just kept going, still swaying, keeping to his slow, leisurely pace as it took him around a bend in the path, and he disappeared from Raleigh's view. Cursing under his breath, Raleigh spurred his horse and followed. 
He hadn't been far behind, but when Raleigh came around the bend, Sugg and the Tavero were nowhere. He reined up and took a closer look at the Tavero's track, but it just ended abruptly. He backtracked and looked for a break off the trail they might have taken, but there was nothing he could see. He cursed louder this time. Sagi shouted, and when there was no answer, he took out his pistol and shot it once in the air. He waited the echo out, then listened, but didn't hear any response. He nudged his own stolen horse along with his spurs until it was loping. He followed the trail around the next bend, but Sug wasn't there either. You've been listening to Brian Evanson read from his latest story collection, A Collapse of Horses. Well, I, I want to go back to the interview with Kyle Miner okay. again one more time, partially because what I what I really appreciated about that interview was that I think he was able to ask some pretty astute questions yeah. because you share a coming from a very intense, both coming from a very intense religious background yeah, yeah. that you've since left and grappled with in your art. Mm-hmm. Um, but one of the things that I want to ask you a two-pronged question about this interview, um, because you've talked in other places about how you steer away from metaphor in general. Yeah. And so what, the question number one I want to ask you is why that's the case. Like, what, why, why do you avoid metaphor? But yeah. one, one of the interesting things that Kyle Miner brought up was that many times in your work, um, there's somebody, say, with a missing body part, mm-hmm. with a missing limb, yeah. uh, or it gets excised. Um, <laughs> and, and this missing body part invites the reader to read the story in multiple ways, both literally and figuratively at the same time. So if you could answer first about okay. the metaphor, but also about how weirdly, even though you're avoiding it, sort of like... Um, the Bible, uh-huh. <laughs> and when you see things happen in the Bible, you can never be sure what's going on yeah. in terms of meaning. Yeah, yeah. And there may be a metaphorical or figurative mm-hmm. reading of a missing arm, which it feels like your story suggests, yeah. even when there's no literal metaphor yeah, in yeah. the story. Well, and I think that there ends up being a kind of figurative weight to a lot of my fiction. And so even if, if uh, you know, the surface is fairly spare, um, and there isn't much metaphor. I mean, the, the, I think the overall effect almost feels fable-like sometimes mm-hmm. or almost feels like it is a kind of extended metaphor in some ways. Um, so I'd say that, but I also, you know, I, I, I think what, I'm, I'm really contrary as a human being for some reason, and so I think at one point a professor told me just how, you know, good writing was really all about metaphors and metaphors were the the central part of it. And that just made me want to write without <laughs> metaphors and prove that, you know, that wasn't necessarily the only thing that good writing was. And it's nothing, I, I have nothing against good metaphors. I think good, good metaphors are great. And, uh, um, when I use them, I try to use ones that I think are good, or I, I love metaphors that, um, you know, I like kind of chain metaphors that start to contradict one another or that start to build up something larger. Uh, and, you know, metonymy and, and other sorts of figurative language is something that I really am interested in. Yeah. Um, so so I, I guess it's that as much as anything. If I use a metaphor or a simile, I, I want it to be the best possible. And I want it to be not something that, that um, feels distinct from the writing, that feels just like it's natural with the writing. Um, so it's not a philosophical... A stance in a way in no. which metaphors related to how close we are to perception, for instance. Right. No, not no. I don't think it's exactly that. I mean, but this this is the thing I also find about metaphor is that 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 anytime you compare something to some something else, you move out of the original context and into another context. Mm-hmm. 
And I think for someone who's writing in a rigorous way, you, you really need to think about the effect of that and what you gain by bringing in the compared object in the place of the object that's already there. Um, so, so that's it as well. It's like if you're thinking of the writing as being something that's a, an object, that's a kind of surface and a kind of contained structure, then, then, then uh, either you want to kind of keep it within its own world or you want to figure out, instead of just having you know, a metaphor here and a metaphor there that are good but maybe point in different directions, you want to have really be building up a kind of world out of these metaphors that all kind of respond to one another. The fact that you bring up fable is interesting because I think fable and holy texts share yeah. that in common that yeah, yeah. that there is no one there's never one meaning right um, you can and also perhaps this this being unsure of yeah. what do you have the meaning right which is the question of a lot of your protagonists for right. for that matter do I am I reading this correctly exactly. what I'm experiencing or what I'm reading yeah yeah and and you know the whole way in which we think about literary criticism evolved from people reading the Bible and thinking about the Bible mm-hmm. and there's there's you know there's many different ways to read you know uh, if you if you look at that you know Dante and also some Renaissance criticism, but some later stuff as well. There's there's so many different ways to read the Bible. You know, there's a kind of literal way of reading it. There's an allegorical way of reading it. There's a metaphorical way of reading it. You know, so on and so forth. And you know, four or five ways at least that that kind of people can kind of move through that text. Um, and and so that's interesting. And 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 you know, it's interesting to see especially Christian scholars trying to to juggle all those things and say, you know, well, it's true and, you know, this is a type and shadow of something else and, you know, this is something we can use to think about, you know, uh, the way in which the church works and, you know, so right. on and so forth. And is there a, a particular mode or modes that Mormon followers would use when engaging text that's different or distinct from uh, say someone who's Jewish or someone who was Protestant. Um, I don't know if it's that different in some ways, except that just Mormons have their additional ho- holy books. Right. And there is, I think, one thing that is distinct about Mormonism is the belief that that um, revelation from God is something that's constant and continuing, and that it's something that individuals can have as well as the the prophet of the church have. And so the idea is that. Um, you know, revelations keep coming, so essentially Scripture is not all written already. It can kind of keep on coming. Right. And, you know, in practice it doesn't seem to come all that fast, <laughs> but but it's, you know, in theory it's still there. So oh. so I, I think, you know, there was the—I think it's pretty common in some religions, but the idea that, you know, you, you read the Bible and then you think about it in relation to your own life or read the Book of Mormon and think about it in relation to your own life was a big thing when I was growing up and— um, you know, these kinds of transliterations or translations that seem to exist. Yeah. Um, but I, you know, I, I don't know that that's unique to Mormonism. Right. There is like ways in which Mormons talk in church um, uh, and, you know, certain cadences and stuff that gets used that, that I think my work kind of makes use of. Mm-hmm. I think my work's probably a lot more unsettling for someone who's Mormon than for someone who's not. But but I think that those things are just, you know... Even syntactically? With I like, think syntactically. And, huh. you know, there's certain ways of, like, if I'm bearing testimony on, on uh, Fast and Testimony Sunday in, in, in a Mormon church, there's certain ways in which I'll phrase things, certain slight syntactic inversions and things like that. And sometimes I use those. Wow, that's interesting. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, another, another area that 
seems to be a recurring theme in the collapse of horses is um, that story as the actual idea of storytelling, right. which I think I wonder now whether that is also somehow tied into this construction of perception. Yeah. But, but um, there are several stories that are s- stories within stories. Right. The two in particular that come out are the two you mentioned at the beginning and the end, which right. are actually in conversation with each other, but contain stories within them. Yeah. And these are often stories being told within the story to try to make sense of something that's gone right. wrong, uh-huh. perhaps. But but <laughs> yeah. but not surprisingly, I'm sure to our listeners now that they've heard your um, approach, the stories themselves do often end up to be more unsettling, right. both to the reader and to the person either hearing them or telling them. And you've said in other places that um, these self-narratives act as a sort of relief, but also as a sort of trap yeah. for the characters. Yeah. Can you can you talk a little bit about how it's a relief and a trap at the same time? Well, I mean, I think they're a relief in that you know this. I, th- I think from from the beginning, what we've we what we've done with narrative is we use them as a way of trying narratives as a way of trying to make sense of our existence and our life. And in that sense, they provide us these these structures and frameworks that that allow us to feel like, you know, things might mean something or or things might make sense in some way. Um, and then I think the reason they're a trap is that in these stories, um, you know, even if the characters think that way, the way the stories seem to go after that um, end up being, you know, fairly dark and 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 maybe the relief that they felt is something that's very temporary or mm. just gets them a little bit off guard. So, yeah. And this is something that happens. Um, you know, I have a story in a previous collection called the second boy and in which one, a story is told and then it starts to be told ad- again. And it's that moment of like telling the same story again with some stuff coming in between that ends up being just terrifying for the character. Mm. Um, and that's, you know, I, I do think we tend to do these things as humans where we, we have these narratives that we use to try to make sense of our lives. And, and even after it's clear to us that they don't work, we, we keep on telling them. Um, and that should horrify us in a way, <laughs> but it, it, it doesn't, you know, yeah. I mean, I, I think that the foundation of a lot of, um, uh, of, of less examined religious belief seems to be based on that, you know, just, just sticking to the narrative, no matter what the evidence is around you. And I think reasoned religious belief doesn't do that. I mean, I think it can be actually very interesting in terms of its engagement in the world. But yeah. Well, do you have a your own self narrative about your interest in what we can know and what we can't know, and and I, and, yeah. <laughs> and this sort of um, the horror of not knowing? Well, you know, I, I I'm pretty convinced that we can't know anything for certain, and that the more closely we look at something, the more we realize that it's. It's just unknowable. Um, but something about that I've, exhilarates me as well. You know, I like that, and I like knowing that I can't know. Maybe the idea, I mean, that's a paradox, knowing that I can't know. Right. Um, but I, I like that, you know, being in that situation and, and believing that there is this mutability to things or, or that things potentially can't be completely grasped. And that may be that it may be partly that I came from a family of scientists and I was the only real writer in the family. And so, mm. so you know, that's a very distinct view in, in that family where, where I have a father who's a physicist who, you know, thinks about the world very rationally and, and, and does believe that, you know, even if we don't know how it works exactly, we, we can know right. it's possible. Um, I don't know. 
I don't. <laughs> you don't know. I don't know. Yeah, I, I don't think we necessarily can. And, and I also think that that's something, there's something about that that makes us human. You know, there's something actually kind of essential and that we can hold on to, you know, and, and being willing to kind of accept the idea that we just can't know everything is, is, is not a bad thing. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, speaking of science, there's, there's a, um, a way in which I feel like your collection feels like an organism. Like it yeah. feels like it has connective tissue between stories, mm-hmm. um, it feels like there is a hidden submerged architecture to it. Not yeah. just the first story and the last, which are maybe the most obvious uh, yeah. resonances as the opening and the closing. But how did that go about happening? It, it doesn't feel like the stories were written as separate discrete units. Uh, were you writing towards holes in the collection or, um, or then going back to previously published things and adding elements to connect them to other things? I mean, that's a good question. I, I uh, Some of the stories... A lot of the stories were, were written for um, other purposes before the collection or for a magazine or things like that. And then I started putting them together and thinking about how they fit together. And there are a few stories that I originally uh, included that I just decided didn't fit or didn't belong. Um, the first and the last story, Black Bark and, and The Blood Drip, um, which do kind of bookend the collection, um, uh, were fairly late in the game, I think. Um, and there was a moment when, you know, there, there's enough kind of similarities with those stories where I, I was trying to decide how, whether it made sense to put them both in the collection or not. And then mm. more and more just realized that it was interesting to have them both in the collection. Yeah. So, um, uh, and then others, um, yeah, I mean, I'm just looking at them and, and seeing, um, um, I think those were the two most recent. Um, stories, the the ones that kind of came at the very end. Any Corpse also actually was a really late story to add. And that I'd been asked to do for a, um, an anthology of occult stories, mm. which I'd never written what I would consider an occult story before, and, and but, but was really interested in the way that had come out. Something about the constraint there ended up making it a different sort of story than I'd written before. So. You said earlier in the interview that you, you don't start with philosophy and then work your way into a story. It's no. like you, you have an interest in philosophy, but right. you're not starting there when you write. But you do have a PhD in literary theory. I do. <laughs> and, and I've also read, as I've done research for this interview, that uh-huh. the book by Deleuze and Guattari, um, yeah. Anti-Oedipus, Civilization uh-huh. and Schizophrenia, uh-huh. is a big influence on you. So I'm curious, does that just ring, does that ring false? If it doesn't, how do you see step, stepping away? Not that it's the way place you start, but how do you yeah, yeah. see that sort of um, philosophical orientation finding itself in your work? Well, so so Deleuze especially um, has been important to me. Um, I would a thousand plateaus. That book by Deleuze and Guattari is probably a lot more influential on me than than Anti Oedipus, but certainly you know they they're they're connected. Um, and but I tend to read that almost more like it's a novel than I than you know I read it very very quickly and very loosely in a way and and I'm interested in the kind of ideas it generates and so I'm I'm very um, I read it very non philosophically in a sense yeah so and it's there's a kind of tremendous energy to that book which I really admire um, but yeah certainly there's a lot of of their ideas I think are things that that I'm intrigued by and that I'm I'm interested in. Um, you know, I mean, there's, for instance, there's a chapter in A Thousand Plateaus, which is about um, 
pack behavior and, and, and the one versus the multiple. And I think you could argue that there's elements of that in some of my fiction. Um, there's, there's other chapters about, uh, you know, there, there's just a range of things that they do that, yeah. So, so, but what I would say is, is it's like, I, I never sit down and say, all right, I'm going to take chapter four and a thousand plateaus, which is about, you know, a bird song or whatever it's about right. and, and do something with that. It's, it's more like, um, you know, I'm, I'm something kind of sparks for me. I'm, I'm running with an idea and, and, and. I, I feel like I've digested those ideas over the years and, and, and they kind of come up maybe more naturally and in a way that's often somewhat different than how they might appear uh, in the original context. In case you just tuned in, we're talking today to Brian Evanson about his story collection, The Collapse of Horses. You've, you've said that some of your stories partially arise from reading other writers mm-hmm. and then seeing ways they could have gone that they didn't go. Yeah. And then taking <laughs> taking that as an inspiration to perhaps go a different direction than yeah. that author that you were reading. Are there any stories in, in this collection that you could talk about that you were reading something else and you're like, wow, what if that author had didn't done that? Um, I, with this collection, I'd have to think about it. I mean, some of them are responding to, to, to genres more than to specific stories. To, to Black Bark is definitely responding to the Western, for instance. And Seaside Town is responding really specifically to things that I saw in Robert Aikman's fiction. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, he's a, um, a a British writer who kind of writes what he calls strange tales, uh, who I really admire. Um, and and so I, th- I think it's partly tied to that. You know, the dust is is weirdly enough a kind of response to um, the movie Outland with Sean Connery. And so so you know, and and it is like it's really. A lot of these things I don't know that people would really recognize or be important um, to, to know. Uh, Any Corpse is a, is a pretty direct response to um, an 18th century book by William Godwin, which is called The Lives of the Necromancers. And it quotes actually a bunch of, of passages from that book. Hmm. Um, uh, but again, I mean, I, 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 so I feel like there was something in that that inspired me and that I... I could kind of take and run with in a, in a completely different way than he he deals with it. So, um, well, yeah. well, someone you you often cite as a big influence for you is Samuel Beckett. Yeah, and there's the obvious um, connection of raising questions that never get answered yeah. that you see in both of your work. Mm-hmm. But could you talk a little bit about your fascination with him and and yeah. also about the two strands of uh, innovative fiction that. Oh yeah, with yeah. that Beckett mm-hmm. is is a good representative of one of yeah. Um, so so and I guess I would say too with Beckett. I mean, part of my suspicion of metaphors probably does come from Beckett. I mean, he's someone also who, who who shies away from metaphors except at particular moments or when he uses metaphorical language sometimes, but rarely uses direct similes or metaphors. Mm-hmm. Um, so, so that's partly that. And, you know, reading Beckett when I was pretty young, um, I kind of came up with this notion of what he was doing. It, 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 it was a kind of fractured allegory where it felt like an allegory, but really didn't have the content of it in some ways. And so somehow getting the impression that you were, you were having an experience that was kind of, um, you know, moving you towards a fable space or moving you towards kind of an idea of things in the fiction being things that you could kind of translate into the real world, but, but never quite being able to get there. Yeah. Um, so, so those things both interest me about Beckett. 
uh, and I just think uh, line by line, he he can be a really tremendous writer. I, I love his work. Um, Malloy, in particular, is is a novel that I return to again and again. Mm. Um, but but all of it, I think, is pretty good. Um, so so I I a while ago I published an article which was about um, um, experimental or innovative writing and and two strands and one strand being the one that's the most acknowledged which is this kind of Joycean strand which is you know really maximal um, you know lots of of, of uh, experimentation that's very visible um, that sort of thing. Uh, and on the other hand, you have Beckett, who, whose way of working, and Kafka, I think, is this way too, is to strip things down to kind of get to the spare essential of things. And, and Beckett's whole career is is kind of, that's his trajectory, is stripping things down more and more. Um, and, and I think in American literature in particular, that when we think, when people think of, of innovative American literature, they think of that big maximal strand but I, I really think that there's amazing things being done in, in the other strand mm. of people who are kind of working in a minimal way, incredibly attentive to language, very careful about their choices, but just not as showy in terms of, of, of how they're experimenting, um, often using things like gaps in the narrative or, or, or kind of um, you know, limiting the tools that they're using to construct the story as a way to make something that feels really unique. Mm. Um, and that, that, for me, of the two, is the more interesting strand. I mean, in a way, it's a little bit of a false dichotomy because there are writers that cross between the two, and I think sometimes I do. Um, but in another way, it's just, you know, uh, I think that, um, for, for me, the future of, of innovative fiction is more in the, in, in the stripped-down strand than in the... The, the maximalist one, which seems more modernist to me. Hmm. And, and Beckett eventually chose to write in French partly to strip down his, his yeah. syntax. Yeah. Well, yeah, he talks about that, that writing in French is a way of writing without style. And so if you look at Beckett's early books before he was writing in French, they, they feel very joycy and they're very, you know, um, the wordplay is kind of um, um, over the top sometimes. And, and then once he starts writing in French, that all changes, really. And I think it was that, um, that willingness to kind of um, work with, with a language he didn't know as well in a lesser palette really made him think about what was essential and what was important. And you both are, are uh, French translators. Yeah. Um, how is that endeavor for you uh, reflected back on your writing practice, if at all, like go translating or carrying across works from French into English, yeah, uh, and and the ways in which that is informed or not informed um, your your writing practice. You know, I I think it's um, it's it's been very helpful for me as a writer, just because I think if you're translating, what happens is that you you um, you're put in a position where you have to figure out how to do things stylistically that normally you you wouldn't do. Um, you, you do things that just are not really in your wheelhouse necessarily. So I think I've learned a lot from translating in terms of, of what, um, you know, it's taught me how to do certain sorts of things. Um, I also think that, you know, sometimes I, I steal ways of phrasing things from French and steal French syntax just a little, hopefully in a way that doesn't mm. seem too in, 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 uh, intrusive. But yeah, I, I think that that's, um, Translating from French has been a good help with me. And sometimes when I'm you know, disorienting the language a little bit or trying to make the language feel just a little bit odd or off, um, I start thinking of it as, as like translating from English to English. Yeah. Mm -hmm. 
And and just this year, along with this collection, you have the three reissues of your right. older novels with mm-hmm. new introductions, one by Peter Straub, one by Matt Bell, and one by yeah. Samuel Delaney. Mm-hmm. How has that been? How... how mm-hmm. um, have you looked? Have you reread the books? Have and when you engage with these writers who are now um, reintroducing these books to the public, uh-huh. how how's your perception changed of of your own work? Well, so um, it's definitely strange to go back and and read uh, older books that I haven't looked at for a while. I did reread them all in the editing process and um, tried to to kind of. Um, uh, you know, not not to try to rewrite them necessarily, but tried to just make sure they were where I wanted them to be. And since they were being reset as well, we had to think about how they were going to lay out on the page a little bit. Um, uh, Peter Straub's introduction to Last Days was actually in the original version, which Underland Press in Portland published. And so it was good to have an, another life for that introduction. I, mm-hmm. I, Peter's a good friend, and I really admire his work. And then um, I it was it was actually very informative with both Matt's and and Chip uh, uh, Samuel Delaney's uh, introduction um, introductions to just be able to um, see what they were seeing in the work and thinking about the work and and I do feel that reading all three introductions taught me something about what not only what I was doing but what other people were thinking that I was doing. So this is a a pretty big year for you. You get. F- Four books coming out. You've moved to California. Uh-huh. I've seen. I see that you're teaching a horror workshop in, Tran- in Transylvania this summer. Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, what What else can we expect from you on the horizon? Like, can you can you tip your hand a little to any uh, works in progress or things that are coming down the pike? Yeah. Um, so there's there's not much at the moment, just because with the move and everything, it's been hard. So I have a few stories coming out here and there, and um, Jesse Ball and I. Um, uh, wrote a book together, um, which is called The Deaths of Henry King. Um, and, and Lily Carre, who's a, um, um, graphic, uh, a, a graphic novelist, basically, um, uh, did illustrations for the book. And that's coming out in um, just a month or so, I think. Um, so so it's, it's basically the it's very short texts in which the same guy dies over and over again. <laughs> And, and and we kind of wrote them back and forth and kind of got to the point where we couldn't tell who'd written what. So it's wow. uh, so a fun little project. That sounds great. Um, and then other than that, I, I have a few other things I want to start on, but I just haven't figured out what they're going to be yet. Well, it was a pleasure having you on Between the Covers, Brian. Thank you. We're My talking pleasure. today to Brian Evanson, the author of A Collapse of Horses. You've been listening to Between the Covers. I'm David Naiman, your host. <laughs> Today's program was recorded at the studios of KBOO, volunteer-powered, non-commercial, listener-sponsored, full-strength community radio from Portland, Oregon, found at kboo.fm. If you enjoyed today's program, consider supporting the show by going to patreon.com slash between the covers. And also while you're there, check out the growing archive of bonus material available. Thanks for listening.